Open your Bibles for an opening passage of Scripture to Job 22. Job 22. Blessed God, I shall attempt to speak on thy behalf to thy people. Open my lips and their ears that I might speak and they might hear and be reminded of what a great privilege we have to be alive and to know thee and that we might know thee better and praise thee more perfectly. Through Jesus Christ, your Son. Amen. Amen. The grandest and greatest of all subjects is before us, and that is knowing the living and true God of heaven, the creator of heavens and earth, the sea, and all that in them is, the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the judge of all the earth, in whose eyes the heavens are not clean in his sight. There is no God like the God of Jeshurun. There's nothing to be compared to him. He alone is God. He is uniquely God. And he is God in ways that is profit to our souls to understand. The longing of the human soul and spirit is to be in communion with this great creator. We were made in his likeness and in his image. We are made with a spirit. He is a spirit. He is spirit. And he is the Holy Spirit. And he can relate to our spirits like no one else can relate. He can satisfy the longing soul. He can undergird the collapsing heart. He is the strength of our lives. And he is the strength of our hearts. He is our all in all, whether we make him so or not consciously. And he is the all in all of the universe. And we want to know him better. And we want to realize the emphasis in the Word of God toward this goal of knowing Him better. We shall not make great progress today in looking at various attributes of Him. But I hope we can make great progress today in considering the emphasis of knowing Him and the focus and commandment of it and the blessing that it leaves in the lives of men who do it. Life can be frustrating, life can be empty, life can be disappointing, but those that walk with God, those that delight in Him, those that remember Him, shall never be discontent. They'll always be satisfied, because they have the unchangeable, immutable God as the object of their affection and their attention. In Job chapter 22 Eliphaz the Temanite tells us in the 21st verse, as he told Job, Acquaint now thyself with him, and be at peace. Thereby good shall come unto thee. Out of 31,101 verses in the Bible, many of which speak of the glory of God, which verse do we use? To open our consideration of this subject, we'll start right here. Acquaint now thyself with him and be at peace. Thereby good shall come unto thee. What a verse to memorize. How much is said in so few words. When we acquaint ourselves with someone, 
we call them an acquaintance. When we acquaint ourselves with something, we open the owner's manual and we learn it. We get to know it. We explore its details. We find out more about it. That's how we get acquainted with something. And so here Eliphaz tells Job, whose life has fallen apart, Acquaint now thyself with him and be at peace. Instead of your complaining, instead of your self-righteous justifying, be at peace in knowing this great God that has made these choices in your life. Now Eliphaz is going to go on and blame Job for secret sins as to why God has troubled him. But as far as this verse is concerned, it's absolute truth. And be at peace, thereby good shall come unto thee. Acquaint now. You know, it's already been emphasized this morning, and it is the one-year anniversary of the passing of my father's wife, my mother. And so quickly has one more year of 52 weeks, of 365 days, slipped through our fingers, slipped past our lips, gone forever for our hearts to worship and praise God the way that we should. Let us do so now. Acquaint now thyself. This is not something we do as a church, though we be worshiping right now as a church. Acquaint now thyself. It is an individual duty that each person can have to walk with God. Let me call it an individual pleasure. So it says, acquaint now thyself. When we see those second person pronouns that start with a T, we know that it's singular, meaning you, and you only, and you by yourself, and you without help from anyone else can acquaint yourself with God. In the secret of your closet, in the darkness of your bed, in the pages of Scripture, sitting in your pew and listening differently than anyone else in here, you can acquaint yourself with Him. Acquaint now thyself with him. And we are speaking of the God of Job, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, and Elihu. We are speaking only of the God Jehovah. Acquaint now thyself with Jehovah and be at peace. Don't let anything in your life distract from this. The Bible would say in another place, be still and know that I am God. I would rather listen to someone preach this message than preach it so that I could be still and know that He is God. I must do it in my study and then share it with you. I hate logistical thoughts of what needs to be done and what needs to be said and what's been overlooked and who's been overlooked when I would rather just think upon Him. But such is the case. Be at peace. Nothing in your life should be distracting. Nothing good is good in comparison. Nothing bad can alter the fact. He is God. And you should be acquainted with Him. And you should be at peace. Thereby, the text tells us, thereby good shall come unto thee. What a blessing. What a promise. What a reward. He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. 
When we acquaint ourselves with God, getting to know the Lord God of heaven better, and He wants us to know Him better, and we are at peace by not letting our little lives down here distract us from that pursuit, thereby, that means by these means, by these two choices of wanting to make God the object of our learning, and by being at peace with that pursuit, good, And when God says good, and when God's messengers say good, that is true good, shall come to thee. It will come. Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. Psalm 37 and verse 4 speaks to the same thought. And so we start with this text. Have you made an effort recently? And I don't believe our efforts have been sufficient. And so the sermon this morning, that we need to acquaint ourselves with Him more. And we want to do it now. And we want to be at peace about our lives. We get so wrapped up in good events. We get so distracted by bad events. And neither are anything. They don't add to or take away from God. They don't add to or take away from what we can know of Him. Let's choose to know Him and to be acquainted with Him. I'd like you to turn to Psalm 37 and verse 4 so that you can see the verse I just read to you. We started out this morning with Hebrews 11 and verse 6 where it says, But without faith it is impossible to please Him. So this morning, believe and ask Him to help your unbelief. But believe that He is and that He is a rewarder. Of them that diligently seek Him. And someone diligently seeking God is going to delight in everything they find about Him. And so it says here in this text that for many decades was my favorite verse in the whole Bible. Delight thyself also in the Lord. And that was the half that was my favorite part. Delight thyself also in the Lord. I get excited about things rather easily. And I can get excited about quite a few things. And I can get pretty intense and worked up and emotional. And almost in an adrenaline high about a number of things. But there's nothing to be compared to capital L, capital O-R-D in our King James Bibles. It's the Lord Jehovah. Delight thyself also in the Lord. The reason the also is there is because you were told to trust in Him in verse 3. And you know there's people that like to trust in Him. Well, that's good. I'm glad you trust in Him. But I want to go way beyond trusting in Him. I want to delight in Him. I want to be excited and joyfully glad about Him. I want to taste His sweetness. I want to get a rush of pleasure. Oh, I'll show you from the Bible. I want my spirit to be lifted up in Him. Delight thyself also in the Lord, and He shall give thee the desires of thine heart. He blesses those men that delight in Him. He is the rewarder of those men that diligently seek Him. Now turn over to Jeremiah 9. And these opening passages to some of you are very familiar. But familiarity does not mean that you're exercising and practicing them the way you should be. 
I'll admit the same to you. It is so easy to get distracted in our duties. And if those duties are never-ending, there's always the excuse to go to the next duty and not just put it all down and get away for a while to taste and see that the Lord is good. To be still and to know that I am God. The Lord says of himself, Jeremiah 9, you need to look at these and let them sink into your soul by the power of the Holy Spirit. I cannot make them sink by my diction. The Holy Spirit must do it. And if your hearts are ready this morning, if you've prepared, prayed, and have participated thus far, you should be ready for these words. Jeremiah 9.23, Thus saith the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Neither let the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. But let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me. That I am the Lord, which exercise loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, saith the Lord. Thank you, Lord, for such a text. It is so easy in this world with our flesh and with the devil's help to get excited about one of three things. Physical strength. Men work out. In their younger days, they want to participate in sports in their schools that they attend, whether junior high, high school, or collegiate athletics. And so they glory in their athletic ability or their might. Then there are those that glory in their professional or financial abilities. And so they glory in their riches. There are others that glory in their academic achievements and what they were able to accomplish in school and the degrees that they were able to obtain. And the Lord warns us, Don't get excited about those three things. And those are not three small things. Those are three large categories of distractions for most men and women. If you need a little bit of adjustment, ladies, I'll tell you how they apply to you. You know, ladies want their husbands to be financially successful. They want to be as attractive as a man wants to be as athletically powerful. They want to achieve their own level of collegiate education, and have academic success as men do. But the warning here is, let not the wise man, even if he had wisdom, don't let him glory in it. Even if he's a rich man, don't glory in your wealth. Even if he is a mighty man, don't glory in your strength. Let me tell you what you should glory in, wise man, rich man, and mighty man. Glory in this, that you understand and know me. You say, that that sounds so arrogant. Oh, it is gloriously so, and holy and righteously so. There is nothing else to desire or to glory in besides Him. He'll tell us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that no flesh should glory in His presence. When you get to heaven, you are not going to be glorying in your family. You are not going to be glorying in anyone else that's there. You're going to be glorying in Him. 
And you're going to know Him better then than you do now. But you'll still only know parts of His ways. You will never be able, even in your best glorified state, be able to comprehend all that is God. The Lord Jesus Christ Himself, in His human nature, though glorified and glorious, could say, but of that day and that hour, not even the Son of Man knoweth. Let those words sink into your ears. There's a God in heaven that has ordained things for me that Jesus Christ, the mediator, does not know. But they're known to God. You sang it this morning. You sang this morning that known unto God are all His works from the foundation of the world and that He ordains those things in life that you are so thankful for. If you're thankful for something in your life this morning, God ordained it before the world began and brought it to pass by His mighty power. What you look at as a coincidence for the person that you met out of six billion people on earth, that's when you got married 15 years ago. There were only six billion. You think that that's just a coincidental mercy of God. It's an ordained promise, an event of His. But let him that glorieth glory in this, to glory in something is to exalt. E-X-U-L-T. That is to, with the voice of triumph and great joy and gladness, get very excited and enthusiastic about it. And to be filled with energy to praise and lift up such a subject. And so men get so excited, you look at an athletic contest a college football game, for an example, and they paint themselves, and they wear the craziest clothing, and they're screaming until their their lungs are shot, and their throats are sore. For what? Some little boys down there that are running back and forth with a weird-shaped ball who have to have two tutors per class to graduate. I speak of the average, especially at local schools. If you don't like it, Check the stats. And they get so excited. Why don't men get excited about the Lord as much? Let him that glorieth glory in this. The Lord wants us glorying. You know, we're not charismatics. And I'm not going to do anything this morning that uh, charismatics would approve of because I'm already preaching and they don't approve of that. But you know what? We're going to be excited about God himself. We're not going to be excited about healing anyone, God, especially since they don't really heal. But they get excited about things the Bible doesn't tell them to get excited about. Even when the apostles got excited about healing, what did Jesus tell them? Rejoice not in this, that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice that your names are written in heaven, that God wrote your names in the book of life of the Lamb, before the world began, that is what you should get excited about, and that's what you should be rejoicing in. That he understandeth and knoweth me. Now, we can only understand a little bit of him because one of his attributes is he is incomprehensible. He cannot be measured. He is infinite. We cannot remember all his ways, nor can we see them all. Scientists are doing their best to discover things, some of which are totally ludicrous in the fantasy of hallucinating, God-hating minds. For those of you that in recent weeks have read about the near discovery of the God particle, well, bless their hearts. With one mouth, with one side of their mouth, 
They deny that there is a God, and the other side is, in order to get published, they're about to discover the God particle. That we understand and know Him. And then He says that I am the Lord. And He puts that name of His, that is His greatest name, there in all capitals for us, I am that I am, which exercise, and then He gives us three attributes. Loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. Loving kindness, judgment, proper punishment for sin, proper defense of those that are oppressed is the word judgment and righteousness. Everything he does is fair and equitable. And we'll be coming back to these and more attributes of his. For in these things I delight, saith the Lord. So when we glory in God, we glory in his immensity. That is his omnipresence. He's everywhere at all times. Jeremiah 23 tells us, Do not I fill heaven and earth. To say the words are overwhelming. Do not I fill heaven and earth. I'm not merely present everywhere. I fill heaven and earth. I am the Lord. I exercise loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in heaven, in earth, the sea, and in hell. It is all righteous. He is holy and righteous in all his ways. Turn to John, the Gospel of John in chapter 17. John 17, my purpose today in this great subject is to stir you up to make greater personal efforts in the next 168 hours, if the Lord will allow us to meet again next Lord's Day, to pursue Him, to be acquainted with Him, to delight in Him, and to glory in Him, and to put down those things that He is not nearly as impressed with, and that you ought not to be as nearly as impressed with that we get so impressed with. Lord, help us. We want to know Thee better. We want to understand and know Thee. That Thou art the Lord. We do believe it. Help Thou our unbelief. We do see it, but open Thou our eyes. We hear Thee with the hearing of our ears, but Lord, open our stopped-up ears that we might see and hear more. In John chapter 17, I want to tell you why you were saved. You were not saved to deliver your soul from hell. You were not saved because God felt sorry for you. You were saved because God chose to display certain attributes of His by the condemnation of some and the deliverance of others. And we've learned that in Romans chapter 9. But let's read it right here in John 17. This is the Lord's Prayer. The disciples' prayer is given in Matthew 6 that starts out, Our Father which art in heaven. That's when Jesus taught the disciples how they ought to pray. It's commonly called the Lord's Prayer. But this is the Lord when He's praying. And this is what He said. I'll start in verse 1. These words spake Jesus and lifted up His eyes to heaven. Where does the Son of Man look? Within Himself? To heaven. And I trust that everyone here knows I mean no disrespect at all to Him that is altogether lovely. But He is altogether lovely as our Redeemer and our Mediator. And that altogether lovely one will be subordinate to God 
for eternity. Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee, as thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. This is life eternal. This is the consequence of life eternal. This is why we give them eternal life, that they might know. It is impossible to reverse the order of that in the light of the New Testament Scriptures, and that is we must know Him first before we can be given eternal life. I would ask you, which part of you then is so full of knowledge about Him and His Son, Jesus Christ? So we understand it correctly. First verse, Jesus Christ prays for the Father to glorify Him so that the Son can properly glorify God in return. If the Lord Jesus had failed in any respect at the cross of Calvary, it would have brought reproach upon His Father in heaven. So He asked for the glory of God to sustain Him and help Him and to glorify Him in everything He said and did. Even in Gethsemane, where He prayed, Not my will, but thine be done. Even He is always submissive to the will of God. That's verse 1. Verse 2, you've given me power over all flesh. You've given me the authority to judge the human race. You have given me the right and the privilege to give eternal life to as many as you have given me. There's election. There's election. It's throughout the Bible. And here it is in verse 2. Jesus Christ is saying that there is a certain number of people and certain persons with their names written in the book of life that were given to him before the world began that he was to give to them eternal life. And then, what was that eternal life for? What was the end or the purpose of that eternal life? That they might know thee. That they might know thee. The only true God. Oh, just those words. What do those words mean to you? The only. How many more are there? None. True. What's every other one that claims to be God? False. The only true God. And Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. That's why you were saved. Do you know what a privilege you have this morning? Out of this universe of creatures... And listen, the ravens and the young lions roar and seek their meat from God. You say, well, I've never seen them write a book about it. God doesn't think they need to write a book about it. They roar and seek their meat from God because he's the one that satisfieth every living thing. And we come here, and here we are in this assembly because God's chosen us out of the human race to grant us eternal life so that we can know him. What a glorious privilege. What have you done in the last 168 hours? What will you do in the next 168 hours until next Lord's Day morning to know and understand Him better?
Will you read a book on the attributes of God? Will you do the unthinkable thing of opening a systematic theology and going to the first few chapters, which are always about the being and the attributes of God? Will you open the Word of God and go to Isaiah chapters 40 through 49, 10 chapters dedicated to one theme, I am the Lord and there is none else. I declare the end from the beginning and the things that are not yet done as though they were past. Oh, those 10 chapters. Or will you go to Job 33 through 42? Another 10 chapters. And what are they? The Lord God introducing himself to Job and his friends and confirming what Elihu has told the four of them. Oh, what will you do? I'm so thankful for Psalm 145 this morning. And I want to take a moment here for a little break and tell you about our great God. Those of you that read the church updates know that about 10 days ago or 12 days ago, I asked for men, 25 to 45, who would be willing to read and explain a psalm to this church to contact me. Daniel, that read and explained Psalm 145 to you this morning, was first. As I wrote Daniel and the few others that wanted to bless the Lord and the great congregation with one of his inspired psalms, I told them, the whole book of Psalms is open to you. All 150. Do not give a thought to coordinating your psalm with my theme. I wrote these words. We will trust the Lord. Daniel had no knowledge of my subject. I did not know his psalm. There is no psalm that can even get in the shade of Psalm 145 as pertaining to this subject. Because all of Psalm 145 is about opening this and delighting and praising and telling the next generation and speaking of all his wonderful works and doing all the things that I seek to pursue in this subject. Now 150 means that it is 0.66 of 1% probability of landing on that thing. Listen, do you know what would happen to somebody in Major League Baseball if their batting average was two-thirds of 1% or or events like that? But two-thirds of 1%. Praise the Lord. I was beside myself wanting to get to a little break and tell you about Psalm 145. You go down through Psalm 145 and just have a little bit of the concept that the Lord has put in my heart to remind us of the importance of the greatest privilege and duty of our lives, and that's to glory in God and to glorify Him. It's in Psalm 145. There is another psalm that can compare. There's not another psalm quite like Psalm 145 in its direction. Praise the Lord. When you're wondering, what can I do at home to stir myself up in the Lord, I've just given you 21 chapters. Can you remember them? If we were to have a quiz right now, could any jump and give me the exact chapters? Isaiah 40 through 49, 
Job 33 through 42, and Psalm 145. Wonderful preparatory reading. I want to tell you something else about our worship. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I am less than nothing. I am the least of anyone that has ever preached the Word of God. However, I cannot deny part of my purpose and role in your life. I speak to each of you. This is what Paul said about himself and about Timothy, and Timothy was not an apostle. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness. Do you believe that part of the verse? God was able to say, let there be light. And there was light. And behold, it was very good. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, there was no light at that time, hath shined in our hearts. And this is a ministerial text for Paul and Timotheus to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. We are troubled on every side. And then he goes forward. You can tell by reading the context, it's a ministerial verse. God visits his people by his ministers preaching his word to them. It's by the ministry of the word, by men God has stirred up and called, that does this work. God hath shined in our hearts. I'm no apostle, but Timothy got into that verse. And I'm obligated to put myself there a little bit. And so I'm preaching to you this morning from God's Word, nothing by inspiration here, everything by inspiration here, for you to know the importance of this great subject. Why did God create you? Proverbs 16.4 says, The Lord hath made all things for Himself. Revelation 4.11, All things were created by Him and for His pleasure. They are and were created. Revelation 4.11, Do you know that? You were not created for you. You were created for Him. And it tells us that in both Testaments, and these are fundamental axioms of our worldview of why we exist. And sometimes you have heard me say, and in two sessions recently with a couple about to be married, in 20 days from today, I have said that that wife ought to wake up in the morning and say, As the Lord liveth, I was created for this man next to me. What can I do for him this day? But before that is said, it should be said, As the Lord liveth, as you live, O Lord, I was created for thee. Help me to live for thee this day by loving this man. Oh, And young man, wherever you sit, the woman that starts off that way, get ready to be able to handle all that that's going to come in your direction. When a woman starts off that way, and then you should be starting off that way as well. Oh, how would we work on the jobs, and how would we do everything else we're supposed to do if we would start off that way? The Bible tells us why God created you. Why do you have existed? You 
have existence? Every one of you. Why do I have existence? For himself. You say that's selfish. Oh, I love it. Oh, I love it to be created for him. Are you kidding me? That isn't selfish. That is glorious. I wouldn't want to be alive or have existence for any other purpose. Because life is vanity and vexation of spirit without him. He makes life altogether wonderful. It is the abundant life just to know him. Just to think on him. Why did God save you? I showed you John 17. You say, I need two witnesses. I'm going to give you number two. Turn to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. I want you to think about the the importance of this subject. Why did God create you? And why did God save you as two ways to exalt it? We know these things. But you know what? As soon as you walk out of here, everything that clamors for your time and every, everything that you read except the Word of God, everything that you hear except the Word of God is going to pull you in, diff- in different directions away from this. And your flesh gets so excited about the things that God told us not to glory in. 1 John 5.20 And we know that the Son of God is come and hath given us an understanding that we may know Him that is true and we are in Him that is true even in His Son Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. This is what eternal life results in. This is eternal life that God has come and given us an understanding through Jesus Christ of Himself and even of His Son Jesus that we might know Him and understand Him. That's why God saved you. The living God of the Bible, Jehovah is His name, did not need you or your creation or any creature to be happy. God was infinitely happy, infinitely content, complete, and satisfied before creating you or anything else. He simply created to display it. To show it off. Couldn't you tell that last night reading Job 38 and 39? Couldn't you tell that? And Job was the best man on earth. Job was the most righteous man on earth. God would say of Job, he's a perfect man and it's choose evil. But did you see how the Lord spoke to him? As if Job were a fool and a rebel and to shut up and listen to me. And then he asked him 1,001 questions, all of which made Job do this. I repent in dust and ashes forever opening my mouth. But did you love reading those chapters? Oh, every every little clause that has got a question mark at the end, you have to say to yourself, no one can do that. It is the Lord and He alone. Man has no glory of his own. Hint. For a week. I've been waiting. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for creating us. This is where you're supposed to say in your hearts, thank you for creating me that I can know you. We don't want to say thank you for creating me so that I can have a family, so that I can get married, so that I can get a job. I don't want to say what I'm thinking right now about those things, even though I love my family, my job, And whatever else God may send us, in comparison, it's nothing. It's just exactly what Solomon said 
It's vanity and vexation of spirit. And while there are some things better than other things and some things less vain and less vexing than others, there's still nothing in comparison to knowing and delighting in Him. God's creation shows Him off. I know these are basic fundamental thoughts. I know that. But you are supposed to take these and go with them. You are to think upon these things. Why did God create you? Why is there a creation? Why is there a world? Why is this blue ball hanging in space? Why is there that big light that comes up in the morning and the little light that comes up at night? Why are there all the twinkling, the twinkling lights throughout the night? Why? Psalm 19. Psalm 19 tells us why all that is there. He didn't need it. He wanted to show off his power. You say that sounds like arrogance or pride. It's impossible for it to be arrogance or pride when we're speaking about a perfect being. We say it is arrogance or pride on the part of any one of us because whatever we say that is good or powerful cannot be backed up, so it's just all a bunch of hot air and self-deceiving lies. That's what makes a huge difference. Psalm 19, you know it so well. The heavens declare the glory of God. How many times do you go out? And instead of running through that to get to a job, running through it to do something else, you stop and look at it and tell him, that is glorious. That is incredible. Do you say it? I say it. Sometimes out loud. Especially if there's no one home. It's wonderful. The greens are so green. This is my father's world. And the greens are greener. The blues are bluer. Because God created it. In all the crayons I've seen in my life, and I can remember, it took a while for us to be able to afford the little 16 crayon set when I was a little boy. And all the rich kids at school had that big 64 crayon pack. But you know what? There's not a blue crayon in there like he paints in the skies of South Carolina at times. And those white blotches that float by called clouds that are holding tankers full of water up there, it's, it's all incredible. Right. I hate street lights. I'd rather live in fear at night so that I could see stars than to have street lights. I wouldn't live in fear at night, but I don't like street lights. I wish I lived in the country, and I'll bet you saw some stars you two, on your trips to California recently. And that's what we want to be thinking. Look at this. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the firmament, that's heaven. That's not another. That's not earth. That's the heavens. Showeth his handiwork. God's a handyman. And what does he make? Sun, moon, and stars. Day unto day uttereth speech. There's a sermon being preached out there. Night unto night showeth knowledge. Do you want to know them? Then go out at night and get away from the streetlights. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. That's sun, moon, and stars. Their line. That's how you preach one point upon another point. I've got a whole bunch of lines up here that need to be preached to you. Their line is going out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them hath he set a tabernacle for the sun, the heavens, and the firmament of the heavens. The sky is a tabernacle. It's a tent. It's a dwelling place for this ball of fire 93 million miles away. 
that warms this planet and burns your skin off if you're in it too long without sunscreen, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoiceth as a strong man to run a race. The glory, Listen to how the Lord is describing his son when it comes up in the morning. As a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, I can't wait, and rejoiceth as a strong man to run a race. Which of you guys are going to be second? His going forth is from the end of the heaven, and his circuit unto the ends of it, and there is nothing hid from the heat thereof. And this is God speaking about one little tiny light bulb in the sky called our sun. Praise his glorious name. Creation is for him to declare, preach, teach in every language and dialect the glory of God. Do you glory in it like you should? It puts men without excuse in Romans chapter 1. And do you know what they do, unless they're born again? They take that knowledge that God put in every man, that there is a creator God, and they worship and serve the creature more than the creator. And so God rewires their brains, and that's where we get sodomites from. That is taught in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 28, very, very plainly, both male sodomites and female sodomites, they can call themselves lesbians or anything else they want to. They have been rewired by the holy God of heaven because man did not give him glory enough for his creation. Do you know what he thinks of a nation that says we came from a big bang or that our grandparents were monkeys? Or that they're going to find some God particle? Listen, he upholds all things by the word of his power. Every particle is God's particle. By him all things consist. I don't care what they pull up, what they think they've pulled apart or what they think they smash together. All things consist by him and he upholds them all by the word of his power. They're little firecrackers called nuclear weapons. Such a joke to speaking this universe into existence. They talk about the solar flare-ups. Do you know what it was like when the solar came into existence? Let there be light, but there wasn't a sun until the fourth day. Let there be a great light in the skies for day. And it was so. That's the only sense we believe in the Big Bang Theory. God said, and there was a Big Bang, and it was so. And it was only 6,000 years ago because the Bible tells us that. Look at God's providence with me in Acts chapter 14 and verse 17. O Lord, thou knowest that I'm so far behind, but I do not care. As long as some sentence or phrase, some verse of Scripture would light on fertile ground this day, that we will go out of here worshiping and praising thee better than when we arrived. I'll thank thee for thy honor and glory only. Not anything from this pulpit. Acts 14 and verse 15. We're at Lystra. And Paul and Barnabas have healed a man with impotent feet in verse 8. And the people of Lystra in the speech of Lyconia, think the gods have come down to them. And that's in verse 11. 
And they call Barnabas Jupiter and Paul Mercurius, two of their gods. And here's what Paul has to say about this. You want to read some theology? Here's some theology. Which when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of, if you ever wonder, was Barnabas an apostle? Do you need to look further than Acts 14? It's not the only place, but it's right there. Verse 14, heard of, they rent their clothes and ran in among the people crying out. And do you do something like that when you hear something ridiculous against God? We can't do it in the workplace. The Lord hasn't called us to do it in the workplace. These are preachers. They're a little bit different from you. But whenever you hear anything stupid being said about God, that someone's angry with, a, with, a, with God, or why is God doing this? What are you going to do? You know, I'd tear my clothes if it'd make the point better. Are you going to rend your clothes and run in among the people and cry out and say, Sirs, why do ye these things? We also are men of like passions with you and preach unto you that ye should turn from these vanities unto the living God. Notice what he calls Mercurius and Jupiter. Vanities. I don't want you to miss any of the good words. Unto the living God because he's living and they're just a bunch of imagined gods which made heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are therein who in times past suffered all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, even when he let nations walk in their own ways, and he only dealt with one nation, the nation of Israel, nevertheless, he left not himself without witness, in that he did good, and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And Paul is saying that about pagans, right along with himself, because God is good to his whole creation, as we heard from Psalm 145 earlier this morning. He did not leave himself without witness. This is the witness of the greatness of God. This is the witness of an attribute of God called the goodness of God. He sends his rain and his sunshine on the evil and the good. And that rain and sunshine combines together to make us food. And when we eat that food, it fills our hearts with gladness And the recognition should be there is a creator God that does that that is far different from two men like Paul and Barnabas. That's the line of reasoning. And there is no God named Mercurius or Jupiter. No real God. It's just the imagined deities of those pagans. Pagan Romans, pagan Greeks, pagan anyone. It doesn't matter. None of them were enlightened. All of them were foolishly darkened by the judgment of God. Only the Bible gives us the light to know the true and living God and not the vanities of the heathen. Oh, I love that. When you're feeling good, oh, that was good. Don't think about the restaurant. The restaurant had so little to do with it. Think about the fact that mud and sunshine made your food directly or indirectly. You say it was a steak. That steak isn't there without mud and sunshine. He fills your hearts with food and gladness. Oh, that was a great meal. That what is? There's a sermon being preached. Don't turn to anyone. They're so secondary. Do you think Elijah thanked the ravens for bringing him food for forty days? God sent those ravens, and God sends restaurants, and God gives gifts to men, and God gives gifts to farmers 
so that they know that Midwestern corn-fed beef does certain does certainly well, if, especially if they're penned up and can't move around for a while. And then there's Kobe and other kinds of beef, and so men experiment just a little bit, and you may not like beef at all because you want one of those yard rats, or I mean chickens, with that plain bland white meat, and that's okay. That's okay, I like chicken too. I hope it's got something around it, on it, in it, with it. But none of that matters. Forgive me. Everything we eat, that salt, a few little grains of sand, it looks like, sand, and it lights up a particular organ that you have hanging between your jaws. Doesn't salt light you up? Frito-Lay says it lights you up. They make you hungry, and then they satisfy it. They give you the chips, and then they give you the drinks. Because it works. And that sweetness, chocolate, I know there's chocolate lovers in here. What made us that way? God's giving us a witness that there are good things. He sent a man to the cocoa bush or the cocoa tree one day, or probably Adam. Probably Adam, because when I read Isaiah chapter 28, it was very early on that those discoveries were made agriculturally. They didn't have to wait 3,000 years to figure out bread. They had bread right off the bat. There it is. I look at a verse like that. He left not himself without witness, in that he did good and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons filling our hearts with food and gladness. The Lord, by his inspired apostles, maintains that there's a strong enough, detailed enough message through this event right here of eating the stuff that he creates on earth that they ought to acknowledge that there's a God greater than Paul and Barnabas or Mercury and Jupiter. That there is a creator God that has an attribute or a character trait of goodness. That simple. This is apostolic New Testament theology. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. Let's consider salvation. We just thought on creation and providence. Providence is God's government and arrangement of affairs in life. Creation is making things from nothing. Providence is his governing of all those things and the way he works events together that, that, that mud and sunshine results in a plant and it springs up and, and a corn plant can, can shoot up 14 feet in just a few months and multiply that single kernel of corn that was put in the soil 800 times or 1,600 times if it has two ears on a 14-foot stalk. Now I'm talking about real corn that's grown in the Midwest. I'm not talking about 6-foot, 8-foot, 9-foot stuff that you may have seen in your life. In a season, springing out of the earth, you would look at one of those stalks and you would say a small child could shinny up it. It's huge in a few months. But there's something else, brethren. Let's think about salvation and what God wants us to gather from salvation. Why did he save us? Now, I've shown you in John 17, 3 and 1 John 5, 20, that we were saved, that we might know him and his son, Jesus Christ. Why did he save us? Ephesians chapter 2 will tell us. 
Ephesians chapter 2, and I'm going to start reading this sentence that starts at verse 4. But God, that is who we are speaking of today, in everything we're singing and praying and doing, but God, because the first three verses are horrible, because they're talking about you, and they're talking about me, and how wicked we were, and how much we preferred the devil to our Creator by nature. But God, who is rich in mercy, we've got another attribute. This isn't just mere goodness. This is mercy. But God, who is rich in mercy for His great love, another attribute of this incredibly infinite being, wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ by grace. There's another attribute. Ye are saved. And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. And there's the end of the sentence. That in the ages to come, that for eternity, He might show. This is why He saved. Just to show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. This infinite being who is perfectly just and perfectly holy should have condemned us by the first three verses and left us without hope. But He saved us because He's rich in mercy because of the great love. Not little love, not barely love, not just love, but great love wherewith He loved us. By grace we are saved. Look at the attributes. Do you read the Bible that way? First, Psalm 145 is a, is a literature, is an exercise in literature. For you to read the 21 verses of Psalm 145 and take a highlighter and highlight the attributes of God in that one psalm. It will exercise you. Look at this passage. Does that exercise you? That is glorious. That's why He saved us. For Him to show things. Mercy. Great love. Grace. Kindness. And the riches of His grace, which were already mentioned. Do you know why you're alive? Do you know why God created you? You were created for Him and His pleasure, and He will obtain that pleasure one way or another. He will obtain that pleasure by casting you into hell if you want to ignore Him in life. Or He'll receive you into heaven where He can show you all those things about you, all that He has done for you. And how do we show that we are the children of God? We add to our faith virtue and to virtue knowledge. We know Him. We pursue Him. We seek Him. We seek after Him diligently. We praise Him and we adore Him. And we take on ourselves the character traits and the conduct of the righteous that are already in heaven and the angels that are there. He is jealous of His glory and He will be exalted. And I, I, I believe and understand from the Word of God that He has every right to be jealous of His glory. And I don't want to ever do anything to take away from His glory. The day of adversity, the day of prosperity, we should consider in both of them that outside of God, there is nothing. Right. That we can find nothing after Him. Why do you exist? To know God's glory and to give glory to God. 
fulfill your purpose starting today. That is why you exist. The first commandment is the greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God. Do you know him to be able to love him? Do you exercise that love of him? Do you pronounce that love of him? Do you communicate that love of him? Do you speak of it to others? Does that love of him alter your life? This is where, I've said this once already, at least, I'll say it again. This is where it's right to thank him for giving you existence so that you can know him, to love him. If he hadn't created me, how would I know him? But he's done so much more than create me. He's providentially blessed me. But he's done so much more than providentially blessed me. He saved me. But he's done so much more than just saved me. He's revealed himself to me. Amen. He, he made Isaiah 40 and 49 very precious to me. He made Job 33 through 42 very precious to me. He made Psalm 145 very precious to me. I'm not bright enough, good enough, holy enough, righteous enough, godly enough to ever make those chapters important to me by myself. But when I was 18 and 19, in God's providence, and I I know nothing about where they live today, I met some young men my same age. And to sit with them, and we would have little contests among ourselves as to who could find the best passages in Scripture to get the Lord up the highest. That's competition of a glorious sort. Mm -hmm. I wanted someone to beat me. Can you understand? Will you all do that for each other? Will we lift each other up in the Lord? And will we know him and love him? Let him that glorieth glory in this, that he knoweth and understandeth me. I, I glory in you this morning. Help us all to glory in you better. Amen.